Miss Monroe, it's time! Welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, it's a delight to say that I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it's an absolute delight to be here. And today, we're going to be talking about Andrew Dominic's new movie, Blonde, now available on Netflix. We should probably say before that that we are recording this in the Royal Festival Hall in the middle of London. That's why you can hear a hoover in the background, for example. This isn't just Rob doing the hoovering and multitasking while we record the podcast. Yes, famously bad at multitasking me. Yes, indeed. Although we maybe we could do a podcast where we do the housework whilst we do the washing up whilst talking about the latest movie. Basically, do the music video for "I Want to Break Free." Yes, indeed. That's right. Get <laughs> right. Yeah, we do have to go to vodcast at some point then, and that would be the maiden episode. So anyway, so we're talking about Blonde. Well, we're right? talking about yes, Blonde, the um, biopic, the new movie about um, Marilyn Monroe, or you know Norma Jean, based on a book by Carol. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates. That's right. Would you like me to give the IMDb synopsis? Please do. So Blonde is a fictionalised chronicle of the inner life of Marilyn Monroe. Short but sweet. Yeah, uh, to the point. Yes, indeed. So yeah, this is the one with Anna de Armas, who we all know from Knives Out and No Time to Die. She plays Marilyn Monroe. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty starry cast. You have... Adrian Brody as Arthur Miller. Actually, I haven't said that it's a pretty starry cast. I can only think of him and Bobby Cannavale as Joe DiMaggio. That is about it, really, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> okay, right. But it has a lot of faces that you'll recognise. There's um, Toby Huss in there. He, I think, plays Marilyn Monroe's makeup artist, Whitey, who's also the guy that kind of gets her the drugs that she needs. Anyone who watched Glow would recognise him from that as well. So there's a lot of good character actors in there too. Uh, but yeah, this is kind of the entire life of Marilyn Monroe from the time she was about five years old up until her death. It goes through her exploitation in the Hollywood system, the way that she was sexualized and abused and exploited by the various men in her life. It goes with the inner demons that she battled and her depression and her mental health issues, a lot of which have come from her mum in one way or another, either inherited illness or a product of the trauma that she experienced when she was a kid. Um, her mum is played by... Remind me again, I thought she was very good. Her mum is played by Julia Nicholson. Yes, who I recognised, but then when I looked her up, I couldn't really place her in anything that I'd seen. Mayor of Easttown, most recently? 
I haven't seen that. But yeah, she's very good. Obviously, the film is directed by Andrew Dominic. Andrew Dominic did The Assassination of Jesse James by the Count Robert Ford, which is a film that I think we both think is a bit of a masterpiece. Yeah, it's possibly in my top ten. Of all time? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's, it is my favourite Western. I think that film is a glorious achievement. He directed Chopper, that was his first film in 2000. I, uh, he did, again, I think that's a great film. Killing Them Softly. Which was his last film in 2012, right? Yeah. Um, that was the Brad Pitt film. I really like that film, and I want to go back and watch it again. It kind of came out to bemuse reviews and kind of been forgotten a little bit. So in the last 10 years, he's directed a couple of Nick Cave documentaries and also a couple of episodes of Mindhunters. And that's it. So this is his first film in 10 years. An Andrew Dominic film, always a cause for celebration because he hasn't put a foot wrong yet. But the question is, what is Blonde like? I really wanted to like it. I'm sensing you might not have done. I saw it I saw it in the cinema. I saw it at the Everyman Crystal Palace, which is a lovely plush environment in which to sink back in one's chair for uh, two hours and forty five minutes. And I think my main takeaway was I came out thinking it's probably an hour and a half good movie in there. Mm. What were the main issues that you had with it? It's incredibly I found it, you know, the virtuosic virtuosic filmmaking aside, incredibly one note. It's just Marilyn as victim throughout. Eternal victim. In every single aspect of her life, in almost every scene, the film doesn't really have any appreciation for her personality or her talent. It kind of just treats her as this radiant object who was kind of fell it, who kind of, no, that's not fair to say the film treats it as though she fell into Hollywood, but that she was kind of exploited and... All the characters in it obviously clearly have like a, a very idealised impression of Marilyn. You know, DiMaggio sees her as the, as the housewife, and Arthur Miller sees her as the muse. And Andrew Dominic doesn't really see her as anything other than the victim, which is, which is the irony of it. For a film that's saying you shouldn't reduce people to, you know, it's. I found it for a two and a half hour, two hour and 45 minute film incredibly reductive. And it's a bit of a slog. Because there are so many, and obviously, I think it's almost a matter of historical fact that Marilyn Monroe was sexually assaulted, she was sexually abused, and that is something that does need to be dealt with in the film that's going to have a serious take on her life. But that's all there is, just constantly. And it doesn't help that the film, because of the way it's structured, it's quite dreamlike being being based on the book and very associative and free-flowing. It's got essentially more false endings than Return of the King because for the final like 15 minutes I was like are we gonna, is this it? is it we going to end? no we're still going no we're still going no we're still going and then it returned to the particular motif that it sets up right at the very beginning I was like okay finally we're done oh not quite yeah it's funny when we were talking about when to record this I said to you well yeah I think I think it was something along the lines of well we need to put some time aside for this one because I was thinking it's going to be a big one. It's going to be a really, really big episode because there'll be so much to discuss. And then you wrote back saying that was along the lines of, actually, I don't think we do need to do a big one on this one. And it was like, okay, right, that's interesting because I hadn't seen it at that point. I watched it last night and, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. This is a weird movie. One note hits it right on the head. This is a two-hour and 45-minute movie in which there is no 
character arc. There is no exploration of character. There's no exploration of the psychology of Marilyn Monroe. Oh, it essentially just boils down to, it sets up right at the very beginning, she has abandonment and daddy issues. And that's this, the thing it keeps on hitting. It keeps on hitting it. It keeps on hitting it. And on one hand, you know, that may have been a compelling drive in her life. But I said, I'm trying to remember what film, what film was it about that, about which you said it was about a rock star or a, where you're like, they must have had good days. Elvis. Sure. Elvis, Elvis. That was Elvis. Elvis, where you're like, there must have been a day where it was like, actually, this is quite good fun. This really, really reminded me of Elvis in that way of like, I'm sorry, but there must have been a day or two where it was fun to be Marilyn Monroe, the most famous woman on earth. Okay, there are queasy parts of the film, and let's just get into it now. Although I've got some other things to say about the film as well, obviously. But I watched it thinking, okay, all you are doing is showing her being abused by men. Abused mentally, physically, and sexually. The film opens... or Sorry, there's a scene towards the beginning of the film where she goes to the president of a studio. Clearly 20th Century Fox. He's called Mr. Zed. Clearly Daryl F. Zanuck. And she is raped in his office now this gets into a really really queasy thing where you're saying well there is no evidence whatsoever that Daryl F. Zanuck ever raped Marilyn Monroe clearly what Andrew Dominic is doing is taking artistic license saying he represents the pinnacle of the Hollywood studio system and that's what the studio system did to Marilyn Monroe the thing there is that it's like well yes but you are saying that Zanuck did that and then it gets into this thing where it's like well, he never did that. He never raped Marilyn Monroe, as far as a ton of evidence says. Which I think, in a weird way, kind of then could have the audience downplaying the fact that she clearly was exploited by a lot of hucksters in her way to becoming a superstar. Clearly, she was on the casting couch, and the casting couch is just a horrible euphemism for rape. And it's like, all these decisions, I think, are the bad decisions. And I was listening to the Mark Kermode review, and he said the only way to really understand this film is to see it as a horror film. And it's like, ah. And I actually heard that review before I saw the film and thought, well, that also sounds like the most uninteresting way to approach a Marilyn Monroe story. Because, well, we've had that before. We've had the fact that she was this baby deer that was abused by the world, and the world loved her, but it also destroyed her and she died at the age of 36. We've had that story. Reading about her, and actually it has to be said, really getting to know her films in the past 10 years or so, because for years I just was not interested in Marilyn Monroe, because she was everywhere during the 80s. Oh, you and Andrew Dominic. Yeah, indeed. Well, he said that he has read every single book on Marilyn Monroe. There's a very, very good interview with Christina Newland in Sight and Sound, and she really didn't like the film, but it's a, it is a good interview. And he said that he read every single book on Marilyn Monroe. He did a ton of research. Did he watch any of her movies? That might have helped. Well, and we'll get on to that in a second, but he does not like her movies, which is like, oh, that's a good way to approach someone who's, you're making a life of film about their And you don't see any value in their creative output? Yeah, well, just, yeah, absolutely. But it's one of those things where it's like, well, I would never guess there's going to be some background noise. The irony being that I came here because I thought it would be quiet. I would never have guessed that he'd read anything beyond the Wikipedia page about this. Because well, he, like, presumably he's read the book on which it's based. Yes, yes. The book, well, but even then, apparently, the book on which it's based actually goes into a lot of her ambition. Mm. And the fact that she it wasn't just a victim, he just chose to ignore that. Apparently it is a very, very big book. 
That said, actually, I don't think he has read the Wikipedia page because the Wikipedia page goes into the fact that she actually took a lot of control in forming the image of Marilyn Monroe. She was worked with publicists, she worked with the gossip people as well to shape the image of Marilyn Monroe. That's an interesting thing that I've never seen on screen before, the, the fact that she wasn't just shaped by men, but she was active in knowing what could make her a superstar. She formed her own production company. She apparently opposed the blacklist and, applo um, and opposed the witch hunts, which was very, very dangerous to your career at that time. She um, Well, it's, it's interesting because obviously um, she was married to Arthur Miller, hmm. who wrote The Crucible. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> There's all that stuff in there where it's like, why are you just getting into the story that we all know that she was a victim who was driven to suicide by the horrible, horrible machine mm -hmm. that ate her up and spat her out? Why aren't you going into, into any of the stuff that hasn't been explored like that? Like the fact that she opposed segregation. There's so much in there that is would expand the person beyond the myth. And this just goes into, actually, I thought, a squalid depiction of the myth. It was a pretty seedy movie. Well, she's not somebody in the film who has, you know, passions apart from romantic and sexual passions she doesn't have you don't get the idea that and obviously Marilyn Monroe in real life was somebody who cared deeply about her work you know to the point of neuroses you know she had she had the acting coach on hand and she was somebody who's probably not particularly easy to work with especially on her off days mm. but she was somebody who was more than just the incredibly limited depiction I mean, she's got, that's right, yeah, I say this, you know, I never met Marilyn Monroe, but I've got to say this because she was a human being, and the character who, as exists in the Andrew Dominic film, is just kind of ethereal, which is, you know, the tragic irony, the her being ethereal, and yet the film, and the characters in the film, mostly male, are fixated on her body, mm. and it's a very um, explicit film. It's an 18 rated, isn't it, in the UK? It is, but it's interesting because I think that the content that would get it the 18 and the NC-17 is brief. And apparently, I can't remember who the editor of the film is, but Andrew Dominic brought in Jennifer Tame, who's the editor on Marriage Story and Judas and the Black Messiah and Tenet, but we'll forgive her for that, to curb some of the excesses of the original cut of the film. A lot of the sexual violence probably went a lot further. And there's a thing, just to go back to Daryl F. Zanuck, it's like, well, in real life, she took him on because she wasn't getting paid enough for what her value was worth to Fox as a studio. And she took him on and won. So it's like, well, that story's not in the film. All, all you get there is that she was raped by him. To your point, there is nothing here. There's not a living person here, even though Anna de Armas, I thought, was great. I mean, she looked incredibly like Marilyn Monroe sometimes. And she sounded like her, but she sounded like her just in that very, very breathy way that she would talk. And it's like... Well, that's how she talks in films and how she talks in interviews. But was presumably that? that wasn't how she would talk in her private life. Is But there is no private life to this because, again, you're just leaning into the tragic image of this woman rather than trying to present any other telling of it at all. There were two scenes in it in the film I really liked. One, one right at the very beginning involving her mother and involving fire. And that's you know, a literal kind of journey into hell. Yeah. And that was that actually made me think of something like, you know, it was like this could be a sequence in Assassination of Jesse James. Yeah. And I also really liked the the first meeting that she has with Arthur Miller, as played by Adrian Brody, where I think it's the, the the kind of main glimpse that you get of her of her intelligence and her erudition and her insight. The fact that she's read something that she's written that is actually based on a real life experience, and her understanding of the text actually illuminates for him the real life experience behind it. Yeah. The fact that he has a revelation about something, and I actually thought, oh, that's actually really nice. That's that's like. This is the most human scene in the whole film because it gives another note yeah. 
And that's the thing is that, because there were a couple of points before that where someone, oh, was it, uh, she mentioned Chekhov or some kind of writer and mm. someone said, all right, so you've read that, have you? So there's always this thing. And when she's talking to Joe DiMaggio, of course, who's just called the ex-athlete and Arthur Miller just called the playwright in the credits. And when she talks about acting and how she really wants to act and to, and film is fine, but theatre means you, you can inhabit that person until the curtain goes down. And he just completely zones out then until she starts talking about children and how much she wants a family and then he's, he's in the room with her again. So she is always being underestimated. But again, even that was one note because it's like, well, there's not one guy here who recognises her immediately. She, they have to be surprised by that and you just keep seeing it over and over again. And of course, you start off with a president abusing her and you know, no spoilers, but towards the end of the film... There might be another president of a different sort of president that she meets. And did you recognise the actor playing him? I did not. Who was it? Casper Philipson may have played the role in another film of which I know we are both a much bigger fan. Go on, Jackie. Oh right, okay. Ah, oh, that's really cool. Because actually, of course, this film also reminded me of Jackie at one point in terms of actually it was that scene when she's getting off the plane when Marilyn Monroe is getting off the plane, and there are those guys there to meet her. That had a bit of a Jackie vibe to it for a moment. But Jackie is much, much better film than this. And we should not say that some of the, you know, some of the fundamental filmmaking I think is quite impressive. When she's getting off the tr- off the plane, or getting out of her seat, and it's kind of she moves directly from there into the cinema space, mm. and she's kind of moving and it's showing how you know physical reality is kind of breaking down around her, and uh, and the shot of her on the bedspread, kind of grasping the sheets in orgasmic ecstasy, and that transitions into the roaring Niagara Falls from the trailer for Niagara. That's a great segue into what I want to talk about next. Which is very quickly on that point. The filmmaking here adds another star to the film for me. This is a three-star film because the filmmaking is so good. Who's the cinematographer? The cinematographer is Chase Irvin. Who hasn't done much. I looked him up and he's done some shorts and stuff, but he's not done a lot. But this looked great. And it's shot in lots of different aspect ratios, but mainly four by three. So it's that square. And it goes from black and white to colour. And And there's another thing where I thought, well, I don't know why people aren't making more films that look like that old three-strip Technicolor or old Eastman Kodak because some of the shots in this film look like they were shot on old film. There's a bit when Arthur Miller is walking down a New York street and you just get that earth-toned, very red grain that you would get with Technicolor or Eastman Kodak. And it's like, we could make films like this all the time if we wanted yeah, to. Yeah, when it, when it shows the clip from um, A Gentleman with Fair Blondes with Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend and it's like, and I, I actually rewatched the film after Blonde because I was like, I, I want to see one. What have you Astonishingly vivid. You forget that colour can look like that in film because I think we've just moved and you've moved towards the the Marvel thing, like just that muted, adaptable. Yeah, everything's shot in log, which means everything is captured, but they just bring out the mid-range of everything, mm. so there's nothing that's vibrant about any of this. I mean, I would say, if you want to see a proper colour film, then go back and watch Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, watch Niagara, which is another Marilyn Monroe film that is referenced here, that's the bit with the waterfall, or just watch any of the colour melodramas during the 50s, like Imitation of Life. Mm. It's just such a great use of colour in that film. Anyway... Another thing that I thought about this film that I really didn't like was that it basically said to the audience, if you like any Marilyn Monroe film... You are you're... participating in her exploitation. Yeah, you are wrong to like it because of what this was born out of. And it really, really tried to destroy any love that you could have for her body of work. 
I'm not sure if it will be the same now, but when I was a kid, to be honest, I had a bit of trouble understanding why people so loved her. Someone, yeah, she's very pretty, but I don't know. It's only really in the past 10 years that I've actually watched any of her films. And she was really good. Obviously, it was a tragedy that she died at the age of 36. But she was really good in films. And Niagara is a great film. It's her and Joseph Cotton. It's a melodrama thriller. He becomes obsessed with the idea that she might be having an affair. It's shot in that wonderful colour. And it's as close as she came to doing a Hitchcock film. And it's probably my favourite of her films, though I do love Some Like It Hot as well, which I think is the only film that Andrew Dominic likes of hers. So in the film, in Blonde, it's like, okay, right, so you like Niagara? Well, here's a scene of her watching the trailer for Niagara while two men are frigging her off in the cinema. You like Jenton prefer blondes? Well, here she is at the premiere sitting next to her rapist. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, this is... It's a two hour and 45 minute film. We spend it all the time with this character. And by the end, it's like, I was not emotionally involved in that at all. I was disturbed by some of it, but I didn't really feel anything apart from just a deadening weight of like, yes, men can be horrible to beautiful women. It's like, well, we've had lots of other more interesting versions of that story. I mean, Hitchcock was making versions of that story and much better versions And anyway. So what did you think along those lines? I mean, do you... Along those lines... I ended up, I, there were points in which I was genuinely sitting there thinking, I wish, I wish I was watching My Week with Marilyn. Really good point, yeah. That was a much more nuanced film, wasn't it? Had a bit of lightness to it. Oh. Dealt with her mental health issues. Admittedly in like a Sunday afternoon friendly format, but not, without, not, not pulling punches. And had nuance and warmth to it. And actually was just, fundamentally was not two and three quarter hours long. But that's the thing, is that, yes, it was a Sunday afternoon film, but you know what? I was emotionally engaged with that movie. Yeah, I just thought this is the least interesting way to tell this story. Actually really quite surprised that Andrew Dominic had chosen to do this, and to make it kind of squalid as it was. Do we have to see the forceps going in in a forced abortion? Apparently we do. In a vagina POV shot. Yeah, that's the sort of film this is. And there was another thing about that that... Yeah, in terms of the NC-17 and the 18, there's not a lot of content in here that would get it that. There's only really, I think, two scenes, both involving maybe a very, very powerful man from a studio and then another very, 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 very powerful man. Not that I wanted more of that, but it was like, okay, so this has come along on a wave of NC-17. And actually, Andrew Dominic talks about that in the interview, saying it just kind of gives the wrong impression what the film's going to be like. And there was a sex scene in this um, when she's in a... Thropple. Thropple. That looks like it's filmed in a hall of mirrors. And I thought that was a very, very interesting way to shoot a sex scene. But as you said, like, why is it three hours? Hour and a half movie? I'd also the fact that Norma Jean, it was again like that thing about the split personality. Norma Jean is the real person and Marilyn Monroe is the construct. construct. There's that scene where she has to find Marilyn in the mirror. Which actually reminded me of Perfect Blue, which is a much better film and a much better look at fame and the impact of fame. Reminded on me of reminded me of Joker. Oh God, <laughs> well, I, I think I had the better experience of being reminded there because Perfect Blue was a 1997 anime. It's just a fantastic five star movie. Uh, Joker, I don't think it is. <laughs> but the thing there is that in 1956, Norma Jean legally took the name of Marilyn Monroe. She knew what she was doing in terms of how to shape this 
star image. What I think would be much more interesting is, because you can never get away from the fact that she did die at the age of 36, it, it was a suicide. I mean, of course, there's lots, lots of conspiracy theories that she was killed by the Secret Service or by the government because of the affair with JFK, blah, blah, blah. It's very, very likely, as in... Well, actually, there was an investigation into it after Norman Mailer's book in 1973 raised issues and you know, doubts about this. In the early 80s, there was an investigation into this to see, well, actually, is there, is there any credibility to the idea that she could have been murdered? It turns out, well, you know, there isn't. She killed herself. That is a tragedy. A more interesting story would be, here's someone who knew exactly what to present to the public, shaped the image, worked hard to shape the image of themselves, that took the world by storm and really defined sexuality and male desire for decades afterwards. Ultimately, it was one of the things that destroyed them along with their own mental health issues. But the fact that they were a person of input and intelligence and power and that she wasn't just a victim. I just think that's just a more interesting story from a dramatic point of view. It just helps you with the script, right? Roughly last time this year, we were seeing um, another biopic of a powerful victimised woman, uh, which ended with the exact opposite criticism, another powerful victimised woman who died tragically, because that film chose to end with her going to KFC. (laughs) Yes, um, which is gone. Which was um, Spencer the Pablo Lorraine movie starring Kristen Stewart about Diana. And that film, the final couple of scenes of it just suddenly decide, oh, we're kind of giving her like a a Hollywood ending where she's going to grab the kids and defy the patriarchy and go and be happy for a bit. And it's like, yeah, on one hand, I get it. On the other hand, she did die in a car crash shortly after this that I think you're just kind of avoiding. Yeah. And there's one thing you can say about Blonde. Certainly it's not avoidant. I'm saying that it... <laughs> This did remind me a little bit of Spencer at one point, not in terms of that there's anything in here that's really, really the same as Spencer, but just I thought that Spencer ultimately was a much better telling of a woman in a similar situation. And of course, Diana was always compared to Marilyn Monroe, and then when she died, Elton John rewrote Kendall in the Wind. Yeah. And Spencer, actually, the horror movie comparisons, I think, are far more valid. Yeah, they are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The Kermode thing, when he said... For me, the only way to understand this film is as a horror film. It's like, well, that is just uninteresting then. It's a gothic thriller with her mum. And it's like, yes, there is, but I'm so bored by that. I'm so bored by the fact that we're going to cast her as like another victim in like a Rebecca story. It's like, she she did tons of other things. I mean, and, and, and the most amazing thing is that the sky is falling in. The most amazing thing is she was only really on the scene as a star for about 14 years. I mean, she did, I think, about... 15 films before she became really big. And one of the films that she did when she was just a pretty girl in films was The Asphalt Jungle, the John Huston film, yeah. which is brilliant. And she's great in it. And she's only in it like a few minutes. But I remember thinking, I had no idea she was in it when I saw that film and thought, oh, I didn't know that she was in this. Actually, Marilyn Monroe's really gay. I must watch some more of her films. And then about 20 years later, I did. <laughs> and also the uh, scores by Nick Cave, Warren Ellis, and... It's good. I mean, I think that they are great composers, but it leans into the Laura Palmer theme from Twin Peaks a couple of times, and, and apparently that was a conscious decision. It's not just a coincidence, but it's like... Yeah, you know, absolutely nothing hummable in it. Not a hummable... <laughs> but it's not a hummable melody in the whole... But the Laura Palmer theme is... is, uh, <laughs> yes. is uh, but again, it's like, really, Laura Palmer, which, and again, that was... Obviously, there were some things from Marilyn Monroe that were being pulled into that as well, and... I think the David Lynch 
at the time that he was making Twin Peaks was also working on Wild at Heart and he described Wild at Heart as Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe go to hell. So Marilyn Monroe was a big influence or like a big figure in terms of how he was shaping his films. Sort of outsized Americana icon, mythologized Americana. icon of Americana icon. Yeah, yeah, indeed, that's right. So there's a reason why you would lean into the Laura Palmer theme, but again, it just seems like you're just going to the least interesting element every single time in terms of telling this near three-hour story. And to your point about the false endings, I have to admit, as it was kind of wrapping up, I was losing interest. I did do the cardinal sin that I never do, of looking at my phone thinking, what was her mum in? <laughs> so I, don't actually, I, don't, I just really, really recognise her from something, but I can't think what it was, and I couldn't see anyway. But that says everything. This like Andrew Dominic film that you, at the end, are going like, yeah, I know where this is going now. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Anna Darmus is great, but not given much to work with. I've got nothing else to add. How about you? No, really disappointing. I did see Smile this week. Smile is a very good horror film. It's a curse movie. Someone discovers that they're cursed, then has to find out how to get rid of the curse. And the curse is going to manifest itself in terms of people smiling, like Rob is doing now. <laughs> but your smile's so lovely, I could look at that forever. Yes, Ryan, yeah. <laughs> and it is very, very traditional in terms of so, how So it... she gets thinner. She gets thinner, that's right, yes. And then she finds a videotape. Actually, there's a, there's a lot of that stuff in there. There's a lot of, like, ring... And it follows a night that if, if you if you do all of them at the same time, that's called pulling a John Constantine. Is it? It's a reference to. He, he does a thing in an in an issue where he gets he may, he sells his soul to multiple demons, knowing that they can't all claim him, and obviously they they're going to have to jockey for it. Ah. Or the uh, the Simpsons joke where it turns out Mr. Burns has basically all known diseases, so none of them can actually kill him. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, it's like just do that with the curse. Just go and watch the video and insult a gypsy woman, and <laughs> and it's like and then just you know what, let them take each other out. Very clever. Yeah, that doesn't happen in this. One of the things that does happen is a lot of things are given away in the trailer in terms of a lot of uh, uh, the jolts, and it's like. You just have to stop spoiling this stuff in trailers because there's a lot of things in this film that's good that it would have been even better if I didn't know. Here it comes, here it comes, yeah. So this doctor, their patient, kills themselves in front of her. She then discovers that she's got this curse that has passed on to her. She needs to find a way to get rid of it. All those things that you've just said, it's very, very traditional in terms of the story arc, but it's got some really good stuff in there in terms of using horror to talk about things like work-life balance, social anxiety, fear of commitment, childhood trauma. I mean, there's a lot in the film. It's an 18, but like Blonde, it's an 18 for just a couple of moments, which are good moments, they're good horror moments. There's also a lot of really good dark laughs in there. I mean, there's a thing that I think some people will see coming at a birthday party, but it's really well done, and it just escalates and escalates into the worst kind of social embarrassment, the kind of thing that you just can't come back from. So that made the audience laugh. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good film. It's And it is a crowd pleaser, even though it's interesting. It has quite a dark look to it, and visually it's very kind of blue and grey... It actually gets lighter as it goes towards the end, even though the story's getting darker, which is quite interesting. But anyway, so Smile is well worth a look. It was much better than Blonde. Blonde, yeah, maybe watch it for the opening 20 minutes to get a sense of Anna de Armas' performance, but if you want an insight into Marilyn Monroe, read a book on her, watch a documentary. 
if you want to really enjoy a Marilyn Monroe film, then yeah, watch... A Marilyn Monroe film. Watch a Marilyn Monroe film. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Niagara, Some Like It Hot. What was the other one that... Uh, Don't Bother to Knock, which is that thriller by Roy Ward Baker that's in this film. That's a really good film. She's really good in it. She's... I mean, The Misfits, it's slightly more... I've never seen that, the final one. Have you seen that one? Yeah, it's great. Is it? Okay, I think right. I saw it during film school. Well, Andrew Dominic hates it. <laughs> but, yeah, well, uh, as we discover that... Andrew Dominic may not be the paragon of taste. We are now really, really fighting the background noise, so probably best right up here. Uh, so, as you brought us in, would you like to take us out? Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, well, Rob, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, for joining me today, he's <laughs> as though I've been interviewing you. Um, well, Rob, um, thank you as always, and if our listeners are looking for you online, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. My writing is at electric dash shadows.com if you want to hear me and Rob talk about or Rob and I whatever if you like the film Highlander and you want to hear Rob and myself talk about Highlander scene by scene then you can listen to a podcast called Another Time at McLeod and now I have musical accompaniment yeah you can listen to that wherever you're listening to this there's lots of great guests on it and um, yes, yeah, so you can find that on Twitter at McLeod Time. Write an email at whowantspopforever at gmail.com. And I'm going to stop talking now before the piano player starts. <laughs> yes, and if you want to find me online, you can do so on Twitter at Robin M. Wallace. You can also find my writing at all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. If you've uh, enjoyed this, you can send us an email at moviebroadcast at gmail.com. It would be great to get your feedback. And if you have enjoyed, please do rate and review. It's always lovely and it really does make a difference so uh, thank you once again Mr Daniel thank you Mr President different different connotations now we've, in the context of the film we're talking about it is I'm glad I did it, just for the look on your face of like what's happening <laughs> and thank you very much for listening happy birthday Mr President happy birthday I don't know who that was. I don't know who that was. No, I don't either. I don't know what's happening right now. Marilyn Monroe only exists on the screen.